Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, a lot going on. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Rocky Peak. And so if you're brand new, I want to welcome you today. And uh, one thing you'll need is inside your program that you received when you came in, there's a, uh, a, a uh, white message note sheet that we use every week for our time of teaching. So if you're especially if you're new, you want to pull that out and help you follow, uh, follow along. Also want to, um, if you're brand new, about once a month, uh, my wife and I have a, a special dessert at our house after uh, a Saturday evening about 7.30. It's just a chance for you to get to know Lynn and I, uh, ask a few questions about the church, meet some other people who are new. And if you're interested in attending one of those, on the back of your registration card today, if you just write, uh, uh, you can either write we- uh, welcome dessert or next step, either one of those. We're kind of calling both things right now. Um, and then we will contact you and let you know when the next one is. Uh, also wanted to make you aware that this week, you know, this earlier this year, we, we did a series on our vision, values, uh, strategies strategies here at Rocky Peak, and I told you that throughout the year and into the future, we'll be continuing to unveil new, new steps of that. And this uh, week, uh, uh, Lord willing, uh, we're going online with our new website. And so uh, you want to check that out. Uh, we'll probably in the e-view later in the week, we'll, we'll re- let you know about that for sure. But it may be online earlier this week, just depending on what day it uh, works out. So I uh, kind of call your attention to that if you want to check that out. So we're going to go into our time of teaching now. You all ready to go? Okay, good. Let's, uh, let's pray and then uh, jump in. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing in our church and the way you're waking us up, calling us on to a life of uh, passionate uh, following, just running after you with all our hearts and, and learning what it looks like to be a, a church of passionate Christ followers, to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers who are pursuing you and loving people and serving sacrificially and sharing Christ. And so, Lord, today as we come to this important topic of spiritual warfare, I pray that you'd come and just uh, be with us. You'd open our ears to hear what your spirit would say. Strengthen me. Help me to be clear. And that together we could seek you together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story starts today uh, a long time ago. In fact, no one really knows exactly how long ago. Uh, Christians even disagree on this. But the but, uh, story starts with our, our first parents and uh, at the very beginning of creation. And um, we're not sure how long they'd been there, but we do know where they were. They were in a, in a garden. It was uh, called in Hebrew the Garden of Eden. We call it the Garden of Eden. And it was an amazing place, uh, paradise of sorts, uh, beautiful uh, fruit trees, uh, beautiful, incredible landscape. They had everything uh, they needed. Uh, we're told that a, a river ran through it, which means that there was great fly fishing. And... Uh, <laughs> And so they had everything they needed. Uh, they, had, uh, they had a place to live. They had fruit trees to eat. They had one another. They had the animals to name, a garden to, to work, not, not because they had to work, but just for the joy of, of working something worthwhile. And uh, it was an amazing place, an amazing time, and we're not sure how long it lasted. We're not sure whether it was a week, a day, five years, 10 years, 20 years. We don't really know. But there finally came a day when, when he came. And... Uh, he started, the, he started the conversation with questions, and he ended the conversation with accusations. And, and by the time he was through, they'd stepped into his net, and their life as they knew it had come to an end. Today we're, uh, we're continuing a series, and for those of you brand new, I'd like to not only welcome you every week, but also just bring you up to speed. The series is called Revealed. You can see it on our walls it's a study of the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and companions, a man by the name of John, who later wrote a story of the life and teaching of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of John. It's in our New Testament. 
We're actually in the midst of this series, um, in the second mini-series called Conflict and Crisis, Crisis Conflict, chapters 5 through 12. You see it there in the front of your note sheet. And today we come to chapter 8. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to chapter 8. And we're actually weighing in in the middle of a conversation um, that started back in chapter 7. If you've been here the last few weeks, uh, you know the scene. The scene is the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three big feasts of Israel every year. The, the, the place is Jerusalem. Jesus has traveled from the, from the north to the south. Even though there's a price tag on his head in Jerusalem, wanted posters up, they're looking for him. And in spite of that, he comes to the seven-day feast that happens in the fall of the year, September, October. And he, halfway through the feast, begins to go into the temple courts. And he begins to write in the midst of the political power structure of Israel. He steps up and he begins to teach publicly and uh, risking his life. And so for the last few weeks, we've been at this Feast of Tabernacles. And we watched him as he makes these incredible claims that he is, uh, has the capacity to give us what he calls the water of life. That if we believe in him, out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's claimed to be the light of the world. And that if we follow him, that we will no longer be in the darkness. We'll have the light of life. We'll know what life's about. He claimed last week that he's the one who knows the truth. He's come to set us free from our sl- slavery. And that if we follow him, we follow his word, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And so he's made these incredible claims. And throughout the Gospel of John, when he's talked to these religious leaders, he's often told them, you know, I know you've got the suits. I know you've got the right clothing. I know you've got the degrees hanging on your wall. I know you're the spiritual leaders. But the fact is you don't really know God. And today he's going to take that to a whole new level. And he's going to say, I I know that you think of yourself as the uh, children of Abraham. Um, I know that you think of yourself as children of God. But the fact is Abraham's not your real father. Neither is God your real father you have a different father. Like, who's your daddy? And so today, if you open up to John chapter 8, we're going to see what he says. He's going to lead them on for a while. Uh, we'll pick it up at verse 37. And so he says, uh, I, know, uh, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. He says, I, I know you're Jews. Um, yet, you're ready to kill me. Uh, you're out to kill me because you have no room for my word. Look, I'm telling you what I've seen in my father's presence and you do what you've heard from your father. And so he's setting this up. He's, he's planting this seed. Your father, who are you talking about? And he's not going to come out and tell them right away. Like a good teacher, he's going to throw something out there and let them kind of mull on it, let them try to figure it out, kind of like Socrates would do or something like that. And so uh, he brings up this topic of their father, and they said, well, what are you talking about? Verse 39, Abraham's our father. They said, you know, we're Jews. And Jesus says, uh, wrong answer. Uh, if you were Abraham's kids, you'd do the things that Abraham did. You'd have his DNA spiritually. You'd do what he did. Uh, he says, as it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham didn't do that sort of thing. You're doing the things your own father does. You're not really Jews. You're not true Jews. You don't have spiritual DNA of Abraham. No, you have a different father, kind of leading them on. And so they, they answer back, well, we're not illegitimate children. Now, they may be taking a swipe at Jesus at this point because around Jesus, there was always a mystery of his birth. And, uh, of course, we know the story of the virgin birth. They probably didn't even know that story at that point in time. They thought he was from the Galilee. They didn't even know he was from Bethlehem originally. And, um, and so, but there was always a mystery around Jesus' birth, though. The whole story of the virgin birth didn't always fly well. People didn't always take to that. Like, right, whatever. And, uh, 
And so there may be questions about his parentage. And so they're, uh, they're, they're making this comment. We're not illegitimate children, maybe implying that he is. The only father that we have is God himself. And so, hey, not just Abraham's our father, but, but God's our father. He's our father. And Jesus says, uh, wrong again. 42, if God were your father, you would love me. Because I came from God, now I'm here. I've not come on my own. He sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Like, why can't you get it? Why can you never hear me? Why? You know, you're just on a different wavelength. He says, because you're unable to hear what I say. It's kind of like, you know, can you hear me now? <laughs> can you hear me now? No, you got AT&T. So 44, he says, you belong. He's going to lower the boom. And he says, you belong to your father, the devil. I don't know how this strikes you. You know, sometimes we get so familiar with the Bible. Oh, it's just the Bible. You know, whatever. They just say kind of weird things sometimes. You know, it's just kind of whatever. Uh, you had a picture of this. These are the religious leaders of Israel. This is like uh, the Pope and his cardinals, you know? I, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not equating this at all. I'm just saying that, I mean, they've got their religious suits. They've got the garb. They've got the title. People bow when they go by. These are the religious leaders. And Jesus looks and says, no, no, Abraham's not your daddy. Your father isn't God. No, it's not. Your father is Satan. Are you with me on this? I mean, there's sometimes, we say the life of Jesus, sometimes people that have never said the life of Jesus will say things like, well, Jesus would never say something like that. Uh, Jesus is always kind. I just want to be like Jesus. He was always so kind. Uh, he's, you know, like, I, I just want to be like Jesus. He was never judgmental. I was like, have you ever read anything about Jesus? Um, he wasn't judgmental in the sense of condemning. He came to, to rescue. We've seen his grace recently. But man, he was a straight shooter. And if you were out of line, he's going to call it like it is. And he looks at these leaders and says, no, uh, no Abraham's not your dad. Uh, no, uh, God's not your father. Um, your dad is, is the devil. Whoa. Well, this doesn't go over real big. He goes on and he says, you, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire to kill him, in other words. He was a murderer from the beginning, back in the garden, we'll look at that later, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, his mother tongue, for he's a liar and the father of lies. He says, no, you, your father's not Abraham, your father's not God, your father's the devil. The way I can tell is you do what he does. You're out to kill me, he's a murderer. You're not interested in the truth, neither was he. I can tell your DNA just by the way you're acting. Verse 45, yeah, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Can, you, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Like, y'all want to kill me, but what's my crime? And if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says on the same wavelength. The reason you do not hear is that you don't belong to God. That's the reason you can't hear me. Well, so at this point, what do you do? You know, when you're in an argument and you're losing and you can't win, what do you do? You resort to name calling, right? You might want to write that down. Um, and so 
That's what they do. They say in verse 48, well, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? You're a half-breed? You're a cultist? You're crazy? You're demon-possessed? You know, you're nutso? And uh, he says, no, I'm not possessed by a demon. I honor my father. You dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself. I'm not trying to make a name for myself. But there is one who does seek it, talking about his father. He's the judge. I'll tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So he makes this big claim. Of course, this is what Jesus has been claiming all through the Gospel of John, that our relationship with God, our ability to receive eternal life, which is not just life in the next life, but life here and now, the life of God, that our relationship with God is, is based on our relationship with Jesus, and that when we come into relationship, that we will never see death as we know it. We'll see new life now, and the next life will live with him forever. And so he makes this big claim again. Now, of course, they take him very literally, as if what he means is, if you believe in me, that you will not physically ever die. You'll be immortal, which sounds even more crazy to them. And so they say to them, he's, they, they said in verse uh, 52, at this, the Jews exclaim, now we know you're demon-possessed. And what they're thinking is, hey, wait a second. Abraham, our, our father, I mean, he died. All the prophets, uh, they died. Like, who are you claiming to be? Uh, so they said, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, so did the prophets. And yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Good question. Um, now, of course, we know the end of the story, right? In fact, we know the beginning of the story. Remember how the story starts in John chapter 1. John does his opening statement, and I told you in, in the opening statement, he both introduces the gospel and summarizes the gospel in his opening statement. And, and we know how the story starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we know that. And so John's a great author, and he often throws in these little uh, kind of ironical statements. And so, like, who do you think you are? And of course, they don't know who he is, but we as readers know. And so you see the irony of this that who do you think you are? And so he goes on to tell them who he is. And so in verse 54, he says, If I glorify myself, like I make a name for myself, my glory means nothing. Like if I'm just, anyone can claim to be anything. That doesn't mean anything. But, if, but my father, whom you claim is your God, you're claiming he's your father, he's the one who glorifies me. I mean, he sent John the Baptist. He does these miracles and so on. And though you do not know him, I do know him. Now here he goes again, kind of beating around the bush. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. Wow. But I do know him, and I keep his word. He says, look, I could pretend. I could pretend that I don't know him. I could pretend that I, I've never met him. But then, of course, I'd be a liar like you. <laughs> wow. I can't understand why I don't like him. Anyway, this is 56. Uh, it's kind of Jesus' version of how to win friends, influence people by Jesus Christ. Never made the bestseller list. 56. Your father Abraham, he says, you claim to have fathers, your Abraham, um, Abraham is your father. Your father Abraham, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He was excited about me coming. You know, like, he was excited about my coming. You're not excited about it. I'm here. Um, that's why you're not Abraham's kids. He saw it and was glad. 
Now, it's interesting. We don't really know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Somehow, Abraham um, saw Jesus' day, and he was excited about it. Um, What's he mean by that? Um, He could mean back in the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham had many had times when the Lord actually came to Abraham, and he could be talking about one of those incidences. Um, he could be talking about some kind of incidents we don't know about in Genesis, which is what we recorded. He could be talking about Abraham's sort of vision of the coming of the Messiah. We don't really know. But Jesus is saying in some way, Abraham was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, and he experienced that. And so this causes them to say, what? You know, you're, you're just a kid. You're not even 50 years old, which is sort of their cutoff line. So it says in verse 57, you're not yet 50 years old. You know, you're just a, a young punk, um, which is interesting how some of us are probably below that line and some above that line, but this is how they define young. <laughs> All right, uh, so you're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said, and you've seen Abraham? Like, what are you claiming? You're crazy. And Jesus says in 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I, what? I am. When Moses, when God first appeared to Moses in the Old Testament, the burning bush, he told him, I want you to go to Egypt and deliver the nation from slavery. Moses said, I'm going to need to know your name. People are going to want to know your name. What's your name? And God said, I am who I am. Tell them the I am sent you. And so these Jewish leaders are saying, who do you think you are? Um, you've seen Abraham? You're not even 50. You're young. What are you saying? And he says, I tell you the truth. It's interesting. In the, in the Greek, it actually says this. It says, amen, amen. Um, I've not talked about this in John, but in the NIV, whenever Jesus makes one of these big statements, he says, um, truly I say to you, in the Greek it always says this, amen, amen, truly, truly. It's, it's sort of like a code for what I'm about to say is very important. Sit up, pay attention, don't miss this. And so he says, amen, amen, before Abraham was born, I am a clear claim to be the God of Israel. And so to this, they pick up stones to stone him, to execute him, because, of course, he's committing blasphemy in their eyes. But Jesus hid himself. Literally, in the Greek, he was hidden. Uh, There may be something supernatural going on, uh, slipping away from the temple grounds. And so we're still at the Feast of Tabernacles. Next week, we'll still be at the Feast of Tabernacles. Next week, we'll cover chapter 9 and part of chapter 10. We're going to cover a lot of ground. So we're at the Feast of Tabernacles, but you can, see, you can sense the tension rising. You can sense Jesus is becoming more confrontive with these leaders. Their anger is growing. Their hatred is growing. The noose is, is the net's kind of uh, being pulled in. Within six months, they will arrest him and uh, turn him over to the Romans for crucifixion. And so we're coming towards the end here as the tensions heighten in Jerusalem. But today, what I want to do is I want to spend some time on this teaching of Jesus uh, about spiritual warfare. 
Uh, in this passage, we went over it kind of quickly, but Jesus talks, uh, uh, makes some statements about spiritual warfare, how spiritual warfare works. It's one of the, some of the best teaching in all the Bible on spiritual warfare. What does it mean for us to be a Christ follower in terms of spiritual warfare? So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Spiritual Warfare, Satan's Strategies. And what I want to do is just make three simple statements that kind of help unpack what Jesus is teaching in this passage. So let's jump in. The first thing that Jesus wants us to understand is that spiritual warfare is real. First thing that jumps out in this passage, spiritual warfare is very real. Like, we live in a day and age that's very schizophrenic when it comes to the unseen realm. On the one hand, as a culture, we can be very scientific and very skeptical about anything unseen realm, the spirit realm. Uh, we can be un- we're very skeptical, and so if we can't uh, see it, taste it, touch it, uh, it's not really real. On the other hand, we're a culture that's fascinated with the supernatural and the paranormal. And you see it in all the interesting seances, uh, uh, Ouija boards, um, uh, and getting things supernatural, you see it on our TV shows, uh, Lost, you know, you see it in this, this new uh, uh, show, Flash Forward, just anything kind of supernatural, paranormal, we're really drawn to that as a culture. Well, Jesus weighs in on this issue, and he says that spiritual warfare is very real, that there's a story behind the story of the human race, there's an unseen realm, there are spiritual beings, and that we are all in the midst of a spiritual battle. And here's the point that he's making, is that once a man or a woman gives her life to Jesus and decides to follow Christ, we change sides in this spiritual battle. We switch sides, and we get a new target on our chest. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw that far side, uh, uh, far side cartoon, as that one, it's like, it's like a bear or a deer or whatever. It's got this, like, target. <laughs> and the guy says, bummer of a birthmark. Um, you know, it's, it's like, as, as, as Christ followers, we, we, uh, we, we get a new target. We, we switch sides in this war. Uh, we were part of the battle before, maybe didn't realize that once we become a follower of Jesus, we become on the target of the enemy. And Jesus wants us to understand the spiritual warfare is very real. Now, in the Gospel of John, um, that John doesn't talk about the spiritual warfare as much as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You're not sure why. Uh, it may be because he wrote perhaps after Matthew, Mark, and Luke and felt like it had been, the topic had been covered. Um, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see the whole story of Jesus starts off with the story of spiritual warfare. Uh, Jesus gets baptized at the beginning of his ministry. The very first thing he does, he goes out into the wilderness. And he's there for 40 days, 40 nights, uh, fasting, praying, seeking God. It's a time of spiritual warfare that ends with his grand finale of final three temptations. He defeats Satan in that warfare, and he comes back in the power of the Spirit, and he begins to release people from spiritual bondage. And so we have story after story of exorcisms of Jesus freeing people from, from spiritual bondage and demon possession. Now, it's interesting, in our culture today, we often don't see in the Western world a lot of demon possession in the same way. In other parts of the world, very different story. You see exactly like a very biblical story is being lived out all the time. I think in our culture, Satan has taken a different tack, kind of a different strategy. But you see this often in the, in the ministry of Jesus where people are, are being tortured uh, demonically and how Jesus sets them free. Uh, we see it, uh, one of my favorite stories is a story in, in the Gospel of Mark where there's this uh, this one man who is actually, he's, he's got a legion, a whole bunch of uh, demons in him. And you see what happens 
when Satan has his way in a person's life. You see this man, he's running naked, supernatural strength. He runs naked through the hills, screaming at the top of his lungs, cutting himself with stones, gashing himself, terrorizing the whole city. You see, what, what happens when Satan has his way in a person's life? Well, the interesting thing is in the Gospel of John, we don't have those kinds of stories, but we do see uh, spiritual warfare, especially in the plot to kill Jesus. Like we see it here in John chapter 8, here are these religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. Jesus says, that's not your own idea, that's really coming from the, your, your father, the devil. He's the one behind this plot. And it comes out even more clearly as we go through the Gospel of John. I want you to uh, show you this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. Keep your finger here, but turn to John chapter 13. In January, we're going to get to John chapter 13. And that's a commitment. And, and I can't wait to get there. Uh, John 13 through 17, these will be our next mini-series. And in this next mini-series, it's, it's five chapters that all take place the last night Jesus is with his men. And so uh, they're kind of a description of what happens that night, their conversation. And that night starts with the Passover meal, the final Passover. And twice in this meal, uh, Satan is mentioned. In chapter 13, verse 2, it says the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So catch this. There is this plot to destroy Jesus. In John chapter 8, we see the religious leaders trying to kill him. They're part of this plot. Satan is behind this plot. But here we see that Satan moving another chess piece into place. Uh, he's got the betrayer inside the band of brothers who's actually going to be the key to this betrayal. And that Satan is the one behind that. If you look then in verse 27, 1327, uh, later in the meal, Jesus gives Jesus, uh, Judas a piece of bread, and it says in verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so we see Satan behind this plot to destroy Jesus. Well, if you turn over to chapter 14, now let's go to the end of chapter 14. It's still that same evening, and Jesus is talking to his men. Now picture this, Jesus knows his time is short that Satan has orchestrated this, uh, this event for him to be arrested and that the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, and Judas are coming after him. He knows the time is short. And so he says in verse 30, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. Catch that. Prince of the world. In other words, in other words I can't speak with you much longer because the, this whole team, Judas, religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, they're coming. Satan is coming. Uh, he's behind this whole plot. That's what he's saying. Um, he says, he has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. And so they're going out of the building apparently at this time. So he realizes time is short. Satan and his team are coming. It's interesting. Notice, what does Jesus call Satan in this passage? What's the name he is? The prince of? Prince of this world. Okay. Someone said Prince of Peace. It threw me. Uh, all right, it's called Prince of this world. And, and so, um, so this is very typical of New Testament teaching. The New Testament teaches that apparently what happens is back in the garden, we'll talk about this more later, that when we chose as a race to follow Satan, 
that we were created to rule. I don't know if you remember this. In Genesis 1, we were told to rule the earth. But when we chose to follow the dark side, we, we kind of abdicated our leadership. We, we gave our leadership to Satan. He became the God of this world. This is why, you remember when Jesus' temptation after his baptism, that one of his temptations, Satan came to him and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in some sort of vision and he said, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. And you remember, Jesus didn't say, what are you talking about? They're not yours to give. He, he accepted that premise. He said, no, I won't worship you, but he, this is the, that Satan is the God of this world. It's why this world, at least one of the reasons why this world is the way it is. Why this world, people will say sometimes, if God is the God of love, why is this world so messed up? It's because this is the, the God of this world, the prince of this world rules. And so the oppression, the evil, the destruction, the hatred, the war, the betrayal, and so on, this is all part of his strategy, you see? This is what happens when he rules. This is what he's aiming for. Now, as you look in the New Testament, then this kind of language is often used to describe Satan. For example, in your note sheet, I put several verses just so we could rifle through them quickly. Uh, but the first one there is from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul calls Satan the God of this age. He says, the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers. Look at the next one. It's Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, As for you, you Christ followers, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. You're spiritually dead. Remember, uh, God said, if you eat of the fruit, you'll die. So you were dead in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the, catch this, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. See, there it is again. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, who's now active on planet Earth in those who are disobedient. Uh, look at the next one, 1 John 5. This is where uh, John, who wrote our gospel, writes a letter. And he says, we know that we are children of God, we as Christ followers, and that the whole world is under the control of whom? The whom? The evil one. The whole world's under the control of the evil what? So this is his, his domain. Uh, later that same evening in John, you know, they go out, and it's, it's John 17, same evening. Jesus is praying for his men, and he prays for them. There in your note sheet. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Like Jesus is about to leave planet Earth. He says, I'm not praying that they can go with me, but that you protect them from the evil one. So what Jesus is saying, Jesus understands that, that his followers have a target on their chest. He says, I've been protecting them while I'm here. God, would you take care of them? Would you protect them? And this is what we find, that when we follow Jesus, we switch sides in this war. But the good news is we switch side from the losing side to the, to the winning side. It's like going from the Rams to the New England Patriots, you know? It's, and so <laughs> I had one guy here last night who was so upset, big Ram fan, I can't believe it. Anyway, I'm not sure he was a Christian, but anyway, uh, <laughs> This, I, he was, couldn't hear what God was saying. But anyway, uh, so we switch sides. And so the bad news is it's just we have this new enemy who's after us. The good news is we're under the protection. We're, we're, under, we're under the authority of Christ. And he who is within us is greater than he who's in the world. In fact, John puts it like this on your note sheet in 1 John 5. He says, we know that anyone born of God, any Christ's followers, someone's been born again, 
uh, does not continue to sin. In other words, live a lifestyle of sin. We talked about this last week. The mark of a Christ follower is that they follow. He says, but the one who was born of God, speaking of Jesus, he keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. And so there's a new enemy, but there's a new protection as well, that we're under the authority of the king uh, who's, who's dismantled the kingdom of darkness. And so, so the thing I want you to catch, though, is this first thing Jesus is saying is spiritual warfare is very real. There's, there's a battle. When you become a follower of Jesus, you become, under, uh, uh, you become a target, and that, that we're all in this spiritual warfare that's been going on uh, for so long. Okay? Now, number two. The second principle that jumps out in this passage is that Satan's passion is to destroy us. Satan's passion is to destroy us. Now, I'm not sure we can really understand this passion, at least not in the depth that Satan has it. I remember a few years ago, a couple years ago, we did a series here on spiritual warfare. It's a five-week series called The War. And in that series, um, I was trying to understand this, trying to understand Satan a little more. And, you know, often I think our picture of Satan is with kind of weird little humorous pictures. You know, he's the guy in the red suit. He's got the little pointy tail, little French mustache, pointy ears, you know, pointy pointy horns, got the the spear thing going, whatever. Uh, Or think of Jack Nicholson, or, you know, whatever. We got this view of Satan, you know. But the Bible presents him, the picture of Satan is someone who's incredibly beautiful, uh, pa- extremely powerful, and, and just brilliant. That's the picture. And yet, that this passion is to destroy. And I'm not sure we can totally get this. Because you would have to be as evil as he is to get this. But I want you to think of the most evil person you can imagine. You know, it could be a TV character, it could be a historical figure, uh, it could be, you know, Hitler, uh, Stalin, uh, it could be a psychopath or whatever. But think of those, you know, evil person that you can, you can think of. And often what you find is that person lives, their pleasure is to bring other people pain. You kind of think of the most, kind of most diabolical person you could think of. I remember when we did that series on the war, I was studying the life, trying to understand this, studying the life of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, the, the, psych, you know, the psychopath. And uh, I don't know if you remember that story, but uh, over a few years' time that he actually uh, kind of abducted, took in 16 young boys or young men, and then um, uh, brutalized them sexually, killed them, and actually at times would eat part of their bodies. And so... Um, you look at a story like that and you're trying to understand evil. And what began to dawn on me as I was studying that is like, where does that kind of evil come from? You know? And what I began to dawn on me is that when we talk about Satan, you take the most evil person you could imagine in human history, that they are a pale reflection of the evil one. That, that he is in a sense, and I don't mean this in a humorous way, In a sense, he's the prototypical psychopath of the universe. That that really he lives to destroy. His pleasure is others' pain. And you think of those kind of scenes you've seen on TV or movies or whatever. Someone who just likes to, to destroy, to rape, to torture, to kill, to devour. That their passion is to live off of the pain of others. And this is just but a pale reflection of the enemy that we have. 
And this is why you can see like in the Gospels, you see that story of the, the man that had the demons in him called Legion as he's running through the hills, cutting himself, smashing himself, superhuman power, screaming in pain, naked. You see, this is what brings Satan joy. And as you study through the Gospels and you see the people, when Satan has his way, people lose their ability to speak. They lose their ability to walk. They lose their health. They lose their minds. They go crazy. And this is what Satan is about. That brings him joy. Uh, Next week, we're going to be studying uh, John chapter 9 and part of 10. We're going to come across a very famous statement of Jesus. And in context, he's not talking about Satan. He's talking about the spiritual leaders of Israel. But as we've seen today, the power behind the spiritual leaders of Israel is Satan himself. And so look what he says there on your note sheet. Uh, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And and so he's, he's contrasting why he's come to give us life, but there's an enemy whose passion is to destroy us. And that's what Jesus is saying today. And I want to point this out to you. Look at your uh, Bibles in John 8, 44. he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire, in other words, to kill Jesus, and he was a murderer from the beginning. Now catch that. He, he's, Jesus is telling us about the dark side. He's telling us spiritual warfare. He says, you understand Satan. You have to understand he was a murderer from the beginning. Now what's he talking about? Well, we started the day with a story of the garden. And you remember that story, the, the, the serpent comes, the evil one comes, takes the form of a serpent. He comes to, to, to Eve. He comes to this beautiful paradise where they have everything they need, a perfect relationship with God and one another. And he comes, and he comes to destroy, and he comes to kill. He knows that if he can get them to disobey, they, the, the price will be death. He understands that. And so he comes to get them to disobey. Now, have you ever, like, why does he want to do that? Like, what did we ever do to him? What did the human race ever do to him that created this desire in him to destroy us? You see, what Jesus understands, wants us to understand is he did not murder us because for strategic reasons. He murders because that's what he does. That's who he is. He is this great psychopath that lives for the, the pain of others. The fact is, is that we are created in God's image and we remind him of God. And if you can't get to God, you get to God's kids. And so he comes after us. We are his passion to destroy us. And here's what I want you to understand, that if you are a Christ follower especially, you have an enemy who's trying to take you out. And he lives to destroy you. And so we need to talk about his strategy. And so that's number three. The third thing Jesus is going to talk to us about this passage is the strategy. And it goes like this. Satan's strategy is deception. The Satan's primary uh, strategy is deception. Uh, it's not his only strategy. It's his primary one. And Jesus uh, lays this out for us in 844. He's told us he's a murderer. That's his goal. But what's his strategy? In 44, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. That's his goal. That's, that's what's his ultimate goal. But he was a murderer from the beginning. But here it goes. Here's his strategy. Not holding to the truth, 
for there is no truth in him. Now catch that. Jesus is not saying that Satan can never tell the truth. What he's saying is that whenever Satan, Satan tells the truth, it's always in service of a bigger lie. Right? See, the best lie is always the one that has the most truth. The best lie is not the flat-out obvious lie. It's like, oh, I can tell you're lying to me. The best lie is the one that is 99% true. Because I look at it and I go, well, that's true, and that's true, and that's true. So I'm not so sure about this, but it must be true because everything else is true. It's the hook. It's the hook and the bait, you see? And so he says, he, this is just who he is. He is a liar. This is when he lies. He speaks his native language, his mother tongue, for he is a liar. He's a father of lies. Of course, you see this in the garden, don't you? Uh, he comes to Eve, and he, he says, hey, um, you can see right away, his goal is to convince her that God is not for her. God's against her. God's not trying to uh, protect her. God's trying to restrict her. And so he comes to Eve in the garden, and he's in this amazing place. You know, it's paradise, right? It's, got, it's beautiful. You got the river going. You know, picture Hawaii like times 10. You know, Hawaii on steroids. It's this amazing place. And you got the fruit trees going. You got the, the beautiful foliage. It's just, it's inc- she's got the perfect husband. She's got the perfect relationship. They have never known evil in all of her life. She's never had an evil experience. She's never been depressed. She's never been disappointed. She's never known pain. I mean, life is good. We're told that both she and her husband were naked. They had perfect suntans, you know. Perfect place, perfect relationship, perfect bodies, perfect suntans. They're naked. And one of the rules is be fruitful, multiply. Like, what's that to like, right? It's like, this is great. And so Satan comes and he says, hey, um, what are the rules for this place? Uh, it's an amazing place. And um, <clears throat> what are the rules? I mean, word on the street is that you're not allowed to eat any of the fruit trees. I don't know. Is that true? And uh, he begins to plant the doubt that God's really for her right away. And the funny thing is, is that that's not the rule. The rule is you can eat whatever you want, whenever you want, with one small exception. In fact, I want you to look at this. I want you to take, uh, go look at Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to see what God had actually said. I, I'm indebted to uh, Joel Inyart for this, uh, this insight. We, you know, Joel's writing the life group homework now, and we get together every Monday and kind of go over what the message is and talk about ideas for the homework. And, and he pointed out something this week that I just thought was phenomenal. I'd never seen it before. Uh, it's in chapter 2 of Genesis. And this is God giving Adam instructions when he puts him in the garden, verse 16. And, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are what? You see that? Underline that. You are what? Free. You're free. God creates this amazing paradise, and the first thing he says is, you are free. God creates this amazing wonderland. He says, you are free. 
You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, day or night, no calories. You know, just, you're free. He says, but there's one exception. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. And so this is a different kind of freedom. You can eat whatever you want, but there is one tree that's going to give them a different kind of freedom. Catch this. It's a freedom of will. God creates us as free creatures, which means we have the right to choose whether we follow him or not. So he gives us everything we want, amazing paradise. There's only one thing we can't do. The reason we can't do it is because that gives us a different kind of freedom, a freedom of choice, a freedom of will. And so God gives us amazing freedom, and Satan comes and says, what did God say? And, and suggests that he, I, word on the street is that it's, you can't eat whatever you want, that the you can't really eat any of the trees. And, and, so, uh, the fr- and so she says, oh, no, that's not right. You can eat from uh, 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 any of the trees. It's just there's one we can't eat from. In fact, you're not even supposed to touch it. She kind of throws that in. Uh, you can't supposed to touch it. And then Satan comes with this accusation and says, that is not the truth. The truth is God is not looking out for your best interests. The truth is God's trying to hold you down. God's trying to restrict you. He's not protecting you. He's trying to restrict you. He's trying to restrict your freedom. The truth is, if you eat of that tree, of the fruit, you'll be brilliant like God. And she looks at the tree, and she looks at the fruit, and it's beautiful, and it all makes sense, and so she bites. And here's what I want you to catch. She loses everything. Now, here's what I want you to catch. That this is the essential, this is always Satan's strategy. His core strategy is deception in your life. Aren't you catch? And his essential lie is always the same. The essential lie is if you eat this, you'll be happy. You'll be free. That's the essential lie. If you, if you eat this, if you do this, if you take this step, you will be happy. God's trying to hold you down. God's trying to restrict you. God's trying to hold back your freedom. If you eat, you'll be happy. You'll have the freedom. Now, I want you to keep that Keep that over here for just a second. Let's, talk, let's compare this with what we learned last week. Jesus comes and he says, if you hold on to my teaching, you follow my teaching, we saw this last week, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so do you see what we have here? We have, we have competing truth claims. What we have is Satan saying, if you follow me, you will be free. And we have Jesus saying, if you follow me, we'll be free. And here's what I want you to catch. In every temptation that you ever face, you have that same exact competing truth claim. The interesting thing is, as you compare these truth claims, what you'll find is there's a difference between them. And we, we talked about this last week in the, in the life of Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, he makes this claim, if you follow my teaching, you will be free. But we talked about this last week. Often it doesn't look freeing, does it? Remember, if you were here last week, we talked about this, that the teaching of Jesus often doesn't look freeing. It looks restrictive, just like in the garden when he said, don't touch, you'll eat. It doesn't look freeing. It looks restrictive. And especially now as fallen people, we hear the teaching of Jesus, and we go, that doesn't sound free. Remember, we, we did this last week. We looked at five areas. Remember, just real quickly again, I said, look at, we studied Jesus' teaching on what he, what he, he, uh, what he, he teaches in uh, areas of forgiveness, what he, ta- what he teaches in the area of our sexuality, 
what he teaches in the area of service and putting others first, what he teaches in the area of giving financially, and what he teaches in the area of dying to self. And we looked at that, and we all said together, okay, does that feel freeing or does that feel restrictive? And all of us, except for about three super spiritual people, said, that sounds restrictive. That sounds restrictive. And yet what we saw is as we follow the teaching of Jesus, the light goes on, and we have our aha moment at some point, and the truth sets us free. Well, here's what I want you to catch. The teaching of Satan is exactly the opposite. If the teaching of Jesus looks restrictive on the surface, the teaching of Satan, because we're fallen people, it always looks freeing on the surface. So you take those five areas, and, he, and, and Satan says, when someone hurts you, you get your revenge. And Satan says, when it comes to sex, love the one you're with. And, and Satan says, uh, when it comes to service, look out for number one. And it comes to the area of finances, and Satan says, the one with the most toys wins. And it comes to the area of dying to yourself. Are you kidding me? Live for the today. Live for yourself. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. See, can you see this? So if you compare them, the teaching of Jesus often looks restrictive. The teaching of Satan on the surface, because we're fallen people, looks freeing. And so he set up this great, uh, this, this great showdown, this spiritual battle at the center of the universe. It's all about trust. And that's why faith is such a big deal in the Bible. By faith we are saved. Why? Because ultimately, the ultimate spiritual decision we have to make in life is who do we trust? Do we trust Jesus who promises freedom? Or do we trust Satan who promises freedom? And in, in the Old Testament, Solomon talks about this whole uh, decision we have to make. He talks often about temptation, and he talks about how it works, and he often uses sexual temptation as an example. It's, it's a powerful example. And there in your note sheet, I put a verse from Proverbs 7, and he's just describing one of these encounters. The scene is a young man who's being seduced by a young woman. I find it helps me to picture this at a bar. Anyway, so with persuasive words, kind of picture the two bar stools. They both have their drink right there. And she's looking over at him and, and says, with persuasive words, she led him astray. Just like the persuasive words, just like Satan did in the garden. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And so all at once, so you picture this guy in the bar stool, and he's kind of, should I, should I not, should I, should I not? You know, yes, I want to, no, I'm not. He's kind of going back and forth. Who do I trust here? And it says, all at once, he gives in, and he follows her like an ox going to the slaughter. <laughs> Like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darting into a snare. If I were writing, I'd say like a trout taking the bait. And then what's this last line? Little knowing it will cost him what? His life. See, the picture that God gives of temptation in the, in the Bible is not so much that the fruit doesn't look good. It does look good. It might even be a great first bite. It's, the, it's, it's the, the apple's poison. That's the picture, that it'll kill you, you see? And so this is the core, the, core, uh, the core decision that every one of us has to make every time we face temptation is who do we trust? Do we trust Jesus will lead us to freedom or do we trust Satan will lead us to freedom? That's the essential decision that we have to make. C.S. Lewis, you know, the famous Oxford, Cambridge prof, Chronicles of Narnia fame, he wrote a book, a famous book called Mere Christianity. He talks about this decision we make 
He says, people often think, it's there in your note sheet, people often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. (laughs) I don't think that's the best way of looking at it. I'd much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, think of it as your soul, the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing, central part of you, into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that's in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy, peace, knowledge, and power. To be the other, and think of the the man with the demons in him, the legion, to the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. The catch is each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. That as Christ's followers every day, we have decisions to make. Do we trust Jesus or do we trust Satan? Every time we trust Jesus, we become a little bit more like Jesus. Every time we trust Satan, we become a little bit more like Satan. There's an ongoing process in our lives. And at the core of the universe, the central issue in spiritual warfare is who do you trust to give you freedom? So here's the last question I want to ask you real quickly as we wrap this up. The question I want you to ask is what is the greatest temptation you face in your life. It could be big, could be small. But what is the greatest temptation you face? I'm not asking for a show of hands. We're not going to have a group discussion, no feedback here. Just want to ask, you know, in your heart of hearts, honest, what's your greatest temptation? Is your greatest temptation to slander? Is your greatest temptation gossip? Is your greatest temptation pornography? Is your greatest uh, temptation to date a non-believer? Is your greatest temptation... Uh, some, in some kind of sexual realm, it's in the financial realm. Like, what is your greatest temptation? Like, fix that in your mind. And once you've fixed it, I want you to understand that at the core of that issue is that there are true, two opposite truth claims. That Jesus is saying, if you follow me in this area, I will set you free. And Satan is saying, God is trying to hold you down. If you follow me, life will be better. And at the core of every temptation you will ever face, it's always the same. The essential lie is always there. And the question we have to answer every day and the choices we make is who do we believe? Do we believe Jesus who said, I came to set you free? Or do we believe Satan who says, now he's trying to hold you down? Let's let's pray. Father, we're... uh, we're trying to grow in this as a church. We're trying to grow in this as Christ's followers. We're trying to grow in faith. Lord, we're, we're kind of wired to distrust you, it seems. It's part of our fallenness. So we have a hard time trusting you, especially in the hard times, especially when your word doesn't make sense, especially when, when the price of obedience is high. And, you know, Lord, help us to understand that it's when the price of obedience is the highest that the payoff in freedom is always the greatest. And so we pray, Lord, that we would learn to trust you, the one who created this world free, the Savior who came to die, that we could have freedom back instead of trusting the evil one who has come to kill, 
and to steal and destroy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.